Remember, you cannot be both young and wise. Young people who pretend to be wise to the ways of the world are mostly just cynics. Cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the farthest thing from it. Because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Cynics always say no. But saying yes begins things. Saying yes is how things grow. Saying yes leads to knowledge. Yes is for young people. So for as long as you have the strength to, say yes. Stephen Colbert Man has gone out to explore other worlds and other civilizations without having explored his own labyrinth of dark passages and secret chambers, and without finding what lies behind doorways that he himself has sealed. Stanislaw Lem, Solaris A Lockshock, A Fabulism Chapter 21, The Chiaroscuro Tunnel after that, I ran, of course. We all did. Pell-mell. Survival instincts clawed at my back and nipped at my heels, chasing me from my own fortress in a yammering, crazed flight across the barren landscape. For hours and hours I ran, deep into the night, my face spasmed in a rictus of horror. Eventually, it was this pain that brought me back to myself, the cramped muscles of my jaw and neck, and the agony of my spasming tongue. Pitch darkness. I can't stop hyperventilating. Snot and tears coat my face. Now where am I? Has the Light Eater triumphed already? But no. There's a band of stars above. A faint indigo line of starlight running across what must be the top of a narrow canyon. Aha! Not consumed quite yet. Not erased. I run my hands over my steel shins to find them abraded and dented, but still quite solid. I doubt I'd have made it far over this treacherous landscape without them. I put out a hand and find ophelitic sandstone beneath, which speaks to me in a calming whisper. Yes... I'm leagues now from the abomination and the treasonous castle, safe enough at the moment. I might even risk conjuring a hot meal. It's been a long day. I can't recall the last time I slept. With that thought, I collapse. Regardless of my exhaustion, my dreams are as vivid as ever. A bright yellow chamber leads to a wide balcony and a dark sky, ozone and iron fill the chilling air. My hands grip the balustrade and try to make sense of what I see. Stars. The multicolored vault of the heavens. So, the void again. But for once I'm not spinning through space as naked as a babe. This time I'm clothed, in a short robe of blue velvet and hose, and also housed. I'm actually sailing through the void in a pretty little vanity castle of silver bricks and ivory towers. Yet I can breathe. The largest towers at each corner are gigantic rockets, much like the alchemical fireworks of Iliamna. Combusting white fire from their bases propels us at tremendous speeds. The multicolored tapestry of stars and globes hangs as backdrop. We sail in peace. We. Who is we? 
I see no one here, but I know I'm not alone in this castle, and it's a surprisingly comforting thought. Who is it? My shrewish mother? Clarice? None seem likely. It certainly isn't that lickspittle Carlinus. Unlike the void surrounding the earth, there is no single great burning star nearby, but rather a collection of eleven or more, blazing bright or dim, near or far, pink or purple or golden white. But each are smaller than our sun, and together shine perhaps as much. I pull myself forward to study the rockets and their exhaust, and find a giant globe far beneath us, as I once saw Earth from the Kuluistrophics. But where Earth's landmasses are green and brown, this globe's are blue and red. And where the Earth's oceans are blue and grey, here they are brown. And where Earth's white clouds blanket the surface, here they are charcoal black. And we are descending. This is a dream, I shout at the globe as my castle sails downward, a much more peaceful passage than the screaming re-entry I achieved in real life. Yet winds do begin to buffet us. They are so dry, my nostrils crack and sinuses ache. A taste of something acid and unknown fills my mouth. My eyes water. Lysophy, I mutter, but then I stop myself. Lysophy is a minor discipline of the element of air. But what precisely is air? That was never a question while I remained on my own bloody globe, but which air does Lysophy manipulate? Is it just the local air? The spell just grabs whatever gases are nearby, or is it more powerful than that? Does Lysophy summon from some other plane the perfect ideal of air itself? I gag. This atmosphere is truly intolerable. But wrapping myself in a pressurized bubble of poison is a useless proposition. Yet I have no other strategies. The castle shudders, the winds battering its underside as it drops. The world dims as we enter a cloud bank of black, and now the air is truly unbreathable. I give in and wave a lysophic bubble over my head. Pure, sweet, clear air. I gasp and suck it into my lungs. Well, that answers the question about lysophy. Idealized air, indeed. Or perhaps this is still but a dream, and my body back on earth merely took a breath as I slept. Either way, I'm breathing normally again, and I can turn my attention to my dramatic entry. The castle breaks free of the dark clouds into a landscape of perpetual gloom. Shadowed canyons streak the empty, cobalt-blue fields. The rays from eleven suns stripe the world in shades of grey. Ah, now this is a world for me. A roiling brown sea is briefly visible over a barren ridgeline before the castle drops too low. Then it is nothing but land, dyed deep blue as far as the eye can see. No plants, no mineral deposits, neither streams, nor rivers, nor lakes. Something forgotten tugs at a back corner of my mind, like a kitten trying to unmake my bed. What is it? Something about a grander castle. Oh yes, the totopass, and a thing I call the light-eater. They seem so terribly distant and unimportant now, the problems of another land. The castle lands with a soft crunch, and I lurch against the balustrade. Well, I'm here now.
wherever here is, and I don't even know how to get back to where I began, but it seems to be time to disembark. An adventure awaits. I turn away from the view and find that my feet float a moment before settling in place. I push myself up from the rail and find that I weigh no more than a babe. A pleased laugh rings in the bubble on my head. I can leap from this balcony onto the pillowy blue ground below. But wait, wasn't there someone here in the castle with me? I turn back one last time to see a shadow move in a tower's narrow window above. Instead of jumping off, I leap upwards instead. A child's vertigo seizes me, and I've never known such joy. I rise and rise in the dry air, reaching for the sill of the window. There, I've reached it, and I look within. Epley turns and glares at me. I bound gently behind her joyous leaps. The young really do enjoy life more. Oh, she was furious at first, attacking me with words, then fists. She made demands I couldn't satisfy, especially the part about taking her home. No, no, Mistress Timon, we are both trapped here. It must be a function of my restive dream states, kitten, and how they interact with this calf. But I have no control over it, I swear to you. I'd take us both back to a lock shock if I could. Then she lost her temper and took her first threatening step in my direction. But she squawked when she launched forward instead, knocking into me. Epley pushed me away and bounced back, wonder filling her face. She took a few more tentative hops, sending herself to the arched ceiling of this chamber. Finally she landed and looked at me with severity. Damn you, Epsim! You're lucky you keep trapping me in such curious places, and that I don't really want to go back to Rieg Pond. Then she launched herself heedlessly from the balcony, and it's been all I can do to keep up ever since. What is this paternal urge I have toward her? There is no chance she's my actual daughter. We share neither features nor attributes. But I have this recurring desire to protect this fair young aspirant to the Aconides. It's an entirely unique feeling, something I've never known. I've been the young upstart for so long. The idea that I must now become the elder and give way to the young who come behind is an idea I've never considered. And there's something more. Sweet satisfaction stirs in me at the hope I can rescue her from the drudgery of her existence. Her talent is so promising. She might even survive to adulthood. Yet what is this horrid need I have to rescue her? And why does the idea of it thrill me so? Someday I will need an answer to this. I'm sure she hates my attentions. Yet the idea of rescuing her rests at the center of my fondness for her. I've never before hoped to save so much as a kitten, much less an entire maiden. Yet the old tales of knights slaying sorcerers to carry a princess away have resonated for an eternity. But why? What do we gain from this? Possession? I have no desire to possess or control Epley in the slightest. As a matter of fact, I delight in following her lead. I just enjoy her company. And I've never truly lusted for her. I hardly feel the need to touch her any more. Yet now that she is with me, I am content. 
We might be wrecked here on these rumpled blue hills for eternity, but I am no longer alone. Perhaps that is it. Isolation has been wearing me down. It's just a kindred spirit. Isn't that all we really need, a steady supply of firewood and wine and companionship? What more makes life bearable? She stops at the edge of a dark canyon and peers down. I land softly beside her with a crunch. I can't tell if the cauliflower surface we compress with our feet is injured or killed by our contact, but there's nothing to be done if it is. I look sidelong at her profile, dark bangs flapping against her face in the wind. Wait a moment. The wind? Against her face? You lackwit! I lift a hand to cast a bubble of air around her head, but then I stop. Wait. No. What is this? How are you breathing? Look, Absim, if you look deep down the canyon, you can see a shining band down there, like pink and purple, like a river. Or an artery. Daywalker, this air is poisonous. How do you breathe it? She turns to me, vaguely annoyed. Eh? Oh, yes, I smelled that when we first descended. It was awful, so I decided to stop. You decided? Oh, I see. This was the missing piece of evidence I needed to realize the true nature of this experience. I wave my bubble of Lysophy away. Ha! <laughs> Just a dream after all. I take a deep breath and am instantly racked by huge, searing coughs as the air invades my lungs. It's like inhaling shards of glass, like pouring acid down my gullet. I clutch at my throat and fall to my knees. Only after a long, agonizing moment do I finally impose my will over my treacherous instincts. Finally, the dream state's grip on my body releases, and I inhale the pure air of my sleeping form down on earth. Then I study her again as I choke down the pain in my throat. It seems you have a stronger mind than me. Oh, you think, she mocks me. But that's no compliment. You're like some senile drunkard. I mean, look at you. I'm surprised you can even dress and feed yourself. Fair enough. You haven't seen me at my best. I have no wish to. Epley, tell me, <clears throat> what happened at the Totopas? It's been an unremitting cyclone of disaster since I saw you last. I was, well, I suppose I was forcibly removed, and then a a whole bunch of crazy, inexplicable things happened, and now I'm not able to get back in. Why not? I have no idea, but Carlinus is quite wroth with you. He believes you've abandoned us to the Aconide. What? Hardly. The Aconide? Pah! Don't worry about those insects. The Totopos is more than capable of handling them. It has evidently signed some rather foul contracts with powers way beyond my ken. But how do you fare? Do the Tongue Beast and Light Eater not yet turn against you? The who? No, we don't really follow the battle. There's a veil of darkness that surrounds the mountain now, and it's hard to see anything that happens beyond it. We can tell the fighting is still going on, but little else beside that. In fact, it's gotten quite boring in the tower. What is a Tongue Beast? You'd rather not know. Well, I'm glad the Keep is protecting you as it should. But listen, it has shot me out and raised a false Absim in my stead. A tyrant vision, seven men tall, who turns into a flying dragon and shoots violet flames. Have you not seen him? 
Absim, I haven't seen you since we hid in the cellar of the tower and you popped that tooth in your mouth. Yes. Well. Yes. Well. Yes. As I say, much has happened since then. It sure has. I had to nearly wrestle Sheshwick and Ogany onto a platform to bring them up to the tower. Oh, splendid. Dear Epley, it pleases me that you've cared for them. The Totopos has neglected them, and I worried. How shockingly tender-hearted of you. So what happened to you? I study the shining band of pink and purple below, like a satin ribbon cast on the floor. Suffice to say that this is the least dangerous and bizarre place I've seen for days. But what did your recovered soul grant you? Any more humanity? Or are you still the same miserable cad as before? Still miserable? I look at her, really, truly not wanting to say this part. Clarice appeared. Did you see her? Well, she and I... We were transported to a different globe, somewhat like this, but very different. One I'd seen before, when I escaped Cotwaller's minions. With Clarice, my return to that world was awful, yet her reaction to it was even worse. And then... Then... It was revealed to us that my body... My... My, my own body! But I can't say it. She stares at me with a frown, obviously wondering what trick I'm playing now. But it is no trick. Tears fall from my eyes. Well, it gave you sadness. That's something. And to my surprise, she reaches out and squeezes my hand. That means something all by itself. It does. I am out of my depth in this emotional and philosophical realm. I find more comfort in the oddness of this landscape— to escape the vulnerability of the moment, I dash the tears from my eyes, throw my arms wide, and exhale my fear in a single gasp. I launch from the edge of the cliff. Ah! Falling into the canyon as slow as a feather, I seesaw down through the stinking air toward the band of pink and purple. Wait! Epley's breathless voice is above. I roll over, spread-eagled, and find her drifting down toward me, angling faster than I fall. We catch each other's hands and fall together. I once learned that terminal velocity is a fixed constant, and that there is no speed beyond which a falling body may reach. It is quite fast. Deadly, of course. I've seen enough stooping hawks and avalanches to know that a falling object outraces the fleetest steed. But once it achieves that speed, it doesn't accelerate any more. None but the greatest cycloagneopathists truly understand why. Yet here, the terminal velocity is lower. Forces work differently on this globe. Mysterious mechanics. Oswalden should be brought here to run his experiments and untangle these secrets. They are beyond me. At the bottom of the canyon, we alight softly on velvet stones. I pick at the brownish surface, and it peels away like lichen. Its smell is quite acidic. With a flick of my finger, I toss it into the river of pink and purple we landed beside. But that is not water. It is an indescribable avenue of mottled hands, all reaching up toward the sky. Misshapen, inhuman. Not hands, no, possibly 
Pseudopods, millions upon millions of them, all running in a broad course along the bottom of the canyon. The bit of velvet lands among the nubs of pink flesh, and they curl violently away as if it burns. The entire avenue heaves, rejecting it, and it flips back onto the velvety sidewalk, or riverbank, or whatever the hell it is I stand upon. It looks like a cat's tongue. Epley stands beside me, staring fascinated at the pink expanse. I had a barn cat named Kester. He'd lick my fingertips if I'd been cleaning fish, and his tongue was so rough. So I inspected it, and he had these little rough nodules, or whatever they are, and it looked just like these. But, but, where's the rest of the cat? I do not care for cats. We demand the same kind of attention. Yet her insight makes some sense out of the scene. Nay, Epley, tis not a tongue. Tis a meandering river at the bottom of a dark canyon. Does it even taste? Or is it meant to transport us to the waiting mouth of some cave? I hope not. I'd hate to die here. I rather like it, apart from the air. But it bothers me that I can't puzzle it out. Speculism would be so handy, yet... I reach for it, but the cunning sight is gone. So many of my powers are shorn from me here. Instead, I begin an adespatachistic chant. I know, I know that the wind must blow. Yet I stop. There is no gathering power in the words. They are only words. And of course we can't practice clerestomy without the jewels, nor geomancy without the earth's own bedrock. This world is too alien to me. I cannot speak to its bones. But there must be something that I can do here besides cast illusions of lysophy on my own person. Wait, I'd wager that there is power to be granted here if they but knew our names. Come down to the edge with me, Daywalker. I have a notion." I draw her reluctantly down to the edge of the pink-nubbed avenue. The closest pseudopods wave at us as if scenting the air we bring. Standing right beside it, it doesn't look like an avenue or a river, but rather like a field of pink flowers. Then the nodules bend away from us and reveal their purple undersides. Give me your hand. She doesn't. Don't you dare pull me in there. It would swallow us whole. I mean to do no such thing. Only give me your hand. You won't sacrifice me. You have no idea how many chances I've had. I hope to empower you. A nervous laugh is her answer. She gives me her left hand. I lift it and bite her thumb. She cries out and tries to yank it away, but I hold it fast. Squeezing a drop of ruby blood onto the great cat tongue, I declare, Her name is Epley. Then I release her hand, and she swats me, hard. But I ignore her shouts and insults to urgently finish what I've begun. I bite my own thumb and feed it my own blood. And I am Apsim, Apsim Totopas Grill. You shall know us, and we shall know you. And then the ground rises up. I have so far mostly shied away from my experiences with the inexplicable, first because they are hideously unpleasant and at heart I'm craven, but second, second, because describing it is tremendously arduous mental effort. So I'm lazy. I'm a lazy coward. This is why you haven't heard of my contact with others beyond Earth. 
upon this other globe. My mind grasps for understanding. Yet there is no reference to anything I know. I might as well make up names for each of the different elements of the setting and string them together as if they make sense. The judal passed across my forebrain and revealed the abacat, which patrocked me across the bloody universe. And even that is wildly inaccurate, as if the judal were a single thing, or that it passed across my forebrain. I didn't even realize I had a forebrain until this happened. I thought it was all one brain. I mean, I've certainly seen enough of them. Life across the void. Uh, let me just say, there exists a far wider definition of life than I ever imagined. Yet I'd never even imagined. It had never occurred to me that these other places existed. I'm never one to sit in idle thought wondering what the universe might hold. It always seemed a waste. And now that I've beheld how truly bizarre creation might be, I can see that I was right. I mean, we have fairy tales for children of elves and dogmen. There's the ribald song of the three-headed harlot who lives in the moon. That's the only equivalent. But it is sheer futility to describe what I find here. Even gods and demons are more relatable than this. They still exist within our realm. But this Katong world, well, it only makes sense to itself. Allow me to start with what I know to be true. One, it's blue with brown seas and black clouds. Two, it possesses a cold, rocky heart. Three, its eleven suns never allow for night. Four, the surface is covered in cobalt blue, which appears to primarily be a mineral compound with some active mobile component. Five, whatever it is that exists here, it definitely seems proud of its ability to reject things. And six, all the action is at the coast. Let me back up a bit. Upon receipt of our drops of blood, the river of pink hands shudder and draw away. The velvet stones rumble. Nobody here likes the taste of us. Oh, come on, her blood at least must be sweet. The ground begins to undulate under our feet, as if it is suddenly uneasy about bearing our weight. The stones tip, then shrug, toppling us into the cat-tongue avenue. The nodules quiver and pull away, flicking us from them. Yet wherever we land, we are rejected again and again. In this way, we are propelled with increasing speed along the winding length of the avenue. If it wasn't such a bruising and battering and, frankly, insulting affair, we'd have more time for wonder. There is no guiding mind behind this. It doesn't feel like the higher-order behavior of an animal. It feels as if each of these pseudopods makes an individual decision to pull away, and in their millions it resembles a wave. In under an hour we reach the sea. But no crashing thunder of waves greets us, only a hissing of brown foam where the fluids meet the solids. The canyon widens to a broad beach which the foam has bleached yellow. The Cat-Tongue River widens and empties into the sea, and would empty us in there too, but I have enough sense to heave myself to the side and scramble out before we are discharged. The yellow fringe I clamber onto is brittle and appears dead or at least it isn't rejecting me. I see that Epley has also saved herself from the brown sea, but has pulled herself onto the opposite bank. Oh, splendid! Now how shall we reach across this wide expanse to each other? 
We share a wan wave, and then I gingerly test my left shoulder to see if it's fully dislocated. Ah, no. Merely separated. Fine. I can work with this. Ha! Here I am taking damage in a dream. Can't I just heal myself? Ow! No! Evidently, that's too much for my dream state to allow. The joint screams in agony whenever I move it. Fine. How to reunite with Epley? There is no clear solution. Perhaps I can build a bridge of lysophy and walk on the air to her. I doubt it. She's a thousand paces away, and this cutting wind would disperse my stairs before I made it a dozen paces. I stare at the purple sky and the five suns that weakly burn above me. What am I even doing here? Oh, right, it's this bloody cuff. The Sulima have really gotten their revenge, I'll give them that. They've cursed me from beyond the grave. I've become the postmaster for our entire globular neighborhood, and I can't seem to turn it off. Not that I've really tried yet. I suppose that is the next thing to attempt. Ah, me and my bright ideas. Epley shouts something at me, but I can't make it out, and it doesn't seem helpful. So I turn my back on her and regard the cuff instead. All right, you blasted piece of steel. What secrets are you hiding from me? I study it in detail. The cuff is only as thick as a thumbnail, but as wide as my hand, a bracer enclosing my right forearm in a tight but comfortable fit. Before, I'd only looked for seams or hinges that could open so I could free myself of it, but it has been wrapped about my arm by unknown means, and here it shall stay. Now I trace the etchings and tiny runes that run along its edges. Do they have any significance? How about this raised filigree? I bark in surprise when a single blue-white ray shoots from the cuff and burns as a steady square in the air before me. Fascinating. It holds steady regardless of how much I move the cuff or the wind whips at it. I stare dumbly at the square of light, then back down at the cuff which otherwise does nothing. Slowly the square of light starts to flicker. Then its frequency seems to slow, and the bright light breaks up into discrete numbers scrolling by in a near blur on a screen. Then the numbers begin to slow, and I start to make out a mechanical syntax that I can't read. Then finally the numbers dissolve and are replaced by the long and severe face of one of the Sulima. At first the shiny black face peers, unseeing outward, speaking its own garbled language. Then it sees me and switches to something more intelligible. Oh, a savage. Why, what an overwhelming improbability. Hello, are you there? Do respond. Have you lost all reason? Yes, I'm here. I gabble at the image, relief overwhelming me. I'm responding. Yes, I've lost all reason. Who is this? Has some primitive stolen one of our Sigolo in Augusta? No, not stolen. The dash. It was given to me. The dash on the Kulu something or other as a final gift to me. I swear, it slapped this cuff on me as it died and I can't get it off. This is the missing Sigolo in Augustoon from the Kulu Wistorafings? The same Sigolo in Augustoon that has been flooding our receptors with alarms for eleven far car cycles? Well, the architecture will be pleased that the alarm has finally been located and shut off. 
But possession of a single Oenergistel carries great responsibility. Have you been fully trained in its use? I know nothing about it. I was just the only survival when the jewel blew up. I've had zero training. None. First, they kidnapped me from Earth. Then they locked this horrible thing onto me, and now I can't stop crossing the void. I'm trapped on some distant globe, and you've got to help me. Crossing the void? Impossible. I'm speaking to you in sidereal time. You must be within a tenth of an arc second, or there would be noticeable lag. A conversation across any portion of the void is impossible. Well, I don't know what to tell you, but if you can see anything of where I am, you'll know I'm nowhere near Earth. He consults a screen and makes an adjustment, and his eyes suddenly widen in breathless excitement. Yes, I see. Yes, you are. Yet, no. Am I truly conversing with an unreconstructed human male in Sector Antigua Zone 17G? But that's impossible. Impossible! Yes, I hear that a lot. You need to get me out of here. But I can't. I mean, how? How did you escape the limits of light speed and slip the bonds of our own sun? How did you accomplish what 5,000 years of Sulima progress has not? Look, I have trouble sleeping and I get bad dreams. Like nightmares every night. But now this Sigil thing hijacks my dreams and transports me to awful places like this. Haven't you been trying to do this for thousands of years? It shouldn't be hard. Oh, right. The Sulima don't sleep. Well, they're bad. You'll just have to take my word for it. Sleep? Dreams? Can it be? Did we leave the answer back somewhere in our primitive brains? Oh, I can hardly wait to get this specimen back here for analysis. I must tell everyone. He merely blinks before his face beams with pride. They are ecstatic. We all are. You have solved the mystery that has kept us anchored to our star. Now the entire universe will be ours. Hold up. Slow down there, Shiny. I don't care about any of that. Me and my friend just need a ride home. Home? Home? His voice squeals like a child at a crofter's fair. You achieved what we all spend our lives pursuing, and yet you want it to end? Yes! I didn't ask for any of this. I am Absim the Horrible, quite content to despoil my corner of my globe and nowhere else. If you're looking for a voyager among the stars, you've got the wrong man. No, no, stay. Your position there is priceless. Beyond priceless. Beyond important. Now that we know it is possible, why it changes everything. Everything. Yet, will the Dash allow it? Its prohibitions against primitives is absolute. But there will be such support for this among the Cogents and Alk. So then, if the Dash does, what about the Yuzumal Atakis? And if they split... His face falls as he visibly disappears down a rabbit hole of repercussions. Hey, hey, don't change the subject now. We're talking about me and my young friend here, not your palace politics. How do I get us out of here? He shakes himself from his reverie. What? Oh, I have no idea. The approach to each world is unique. The Kuluistorophics established initial contact there and they are gone. Whatever they've learned will be stored in the Sigalo in Augusta you possess. So you're telling me you can't help me? Ours is a mission of contact. Have you tried contacting your hosts? I did. I gave them a drop of blood and told them our names and they tried to throw us in the sea. You did what? His mouth worked silently in growing outrage. You far-car fool! 
That goes directly against the first fundament. There are protocols for this. You've just given away the entire human genome with no assurances. Do you receive no training in contact at all? By the dark sun, you're a menace. No, do nothing there. Say nothing. Under no circumstances shall you present yourself as a representative of the Sulima. We now absolutely support your attempt to leave that planet. At once. And when you return, we demand that you present yourself to us for dissection and analysis. Yes, well, that isn't going to happen. I dismiss him by covering the ray of light's bright source with my thumb. His irate voice is smothered as well. Soon he falls silent. After a long moment, I uncover the spot to find the ray is gone. I turn to Epley. She watches me. I guess my light was visible in the gloom. I shrug at her. She shouts at me. I wish I could hear her. She seems to have a lot of ideas. I shrug more dramatically. Think, Absom. Think. The wretch said that all that is known of this globe is stored within this sigil cuff. The cuff remains the key. It is what brought me here, and it will bring me home. Now, do so, cuff. I command it. Nothing. There must be some other way to manipulate this thing. In some way, my dream state must be addressed. But how? I'm already in a dream, and the sigil cuff has ceased paying attention. How can I command it once more? Perhaps I can fall asleep here, to dream a dream within a dream. I'm certainly fatigued enough. Exploration is exhausting work. Epley still shouts at me. She'll go hoarse if she keeps that up. Her gestures are filled with urgency. They nearly make sense. Oh well. Perhaps it will make better sense when I awaken. I lie down and close my eyes, the cuff held across my chest like a totem. It takes me a long time to fall asleep, but when I finally do, I find myself in an antiseptic structure that reminds me of the Kuluistrophics. I stand in a dark hallway, made entirely of steel, but red lines of pulsing fire run along the walls and floor. I walk slowly forward. A door hisses open, and I enter a grand hall, not unlike the one where I was introduced to the dash by If. But there, crowds of Sulema sat at consoles and counters, engaging with each other or with the dash. Here it is empty. Yet I find a console with two holes in it. I sit and put my hands in the holes. I drop yet another layer within. Now I'm back in a dash's imagery, inside a dream, inside another dream. I recall the bright abstract colors. This dash's voice, though, is higher and softer than the one I met before. Integration complete. This process has taken 1,247.64 times longer than anticipated. Adjustments in long-range schedule complete. Quorum reached. System check initiative. Systems nominal. Operator query. The fields of color swarm with activity. I look around and around myself. I can't make sense of any of it. Operator query. And then, a moment later, in its infinitely patient voice. Operator query. Who? This is a query of the operator for the Sigilo Inugistun, Vistagubinizam. Are you he? This feels like a trap. Yes. Primary mission will now commence.
A chiaroscuro swirls across my vision and I nearly faint away. Then the fields of color telescope into a long tunnel stretching away from me. The voice whispers into my ear. Place the cuff within the foam. I, uh, I'd rather not. If I wake, then I'll break this connection. Not any longer. This Sigilo in Ogistun is now fully operational. You will have access to its interface at all times. I take a deep breath and shake myself awake. Perhaps if I shake myself hard enough, I will break through both dreams to find myself back on Earth. I open my eyes. No, I've only awakened by one level of sleep. The bleak shadows and gloom of the cat-tongue world still surround me. The brown sea, the pink river, the yellow fringe. I stand and glance across to Epley. But she's gone. Oh, fantastic. I burn all that paternal heartache on her, and I can't even keep her within sight. Well done, Absim. Fucking well done. Place the cuff within the foam. I heard you the first time. I'm working on it. Edging forward to the bank of foam, quivering in the wind. Hesitantly, I push the cuff forward. The foam is surprisingly cool as it envelops my hand. Then my vision is taken over by the cuff once more, that swirling tunnel of color. A cobalt blue entity now rests at the far end, robed in brown, crowned in pink. I understand on some deep level that this isn't a true representation of the life forms here, but it is the closest the cuff can manage. The long tunnel seems to be our translation process. Well, we call this representation the Oppidum. I have fixed it in time, space, and concept for you. Greet it as is your custom, and I will adapt your words and gestures into something the Oppidum understands. I see. Hail Oppidum. My words shimmer the walls of the tunnel with color. They swirl down its length toward the oppidum, turning into something entirely other. The blue thing digests the shimmering display, then after a moment sends its own reply like fireworks. They course toward me, resolving into colors I more easily recognize than words. I reject you. No shit. This comment, the cuff tells me, will most likely be adapted incorrectly. Please refrain from emotion, irony, and hostility. Fine. Uh, I reject you too. This seems to be accepted surprisingly well. Now, operator, what do you have to tell the oppidum, or ask of it? I open my mouth to beg for a way back home, but my diabolical nature asserts itself at the last moment and changes my appeal. My mouth twists into a familiar grimace. Power! I desire all the power you can grant me. After a breathless moment, as the colors travel up and down the tunnel, the oppidum responds. As you wish. Thanks for listening to A Lock Shock. Stay tuned every week for new episodes. Tell your friends and keep an eye out for other stories told here on The Unuseful Hour. <laughs>